Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Agroecosystems of Tomorrow. I'm your host, Matt Wallenstein. Each episode, we feature the stories and the science of the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences. On today's show, we welcome Raj Kosla. Raj is a professor here in the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences with expertise in precision agriculture. Welcome, Raj. Great to have you here. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's a great pleasure uh, to be talking with you uh, about the kind of things that my program and I do. I, you know, and, and the kinds of things that you do are, uh, are really at the forefront of agriculture today. When, we, uh, when I look at what's going on out in industry, a lot of the excitement is around uh, using data and um, remote sensing to give farmers new information about how to better manage their crops. You've been in this a long time, haven't you? Yeah. Um, as I look back, you know, uh, just last summer I completed 20 years at CSU. Um, and my entire career has been in this discipline of what we call precision agriculture. More recently, it has picked up newer names, digital agriculture, smart farming, um, ag tech. But uh, in one way or the other, we're primarily talking about the same, this new paradigm shift, if you may, of doing agriculture. For, for people that aren't familiar with agriculture, um, what why is it important to what is this this digital agriculture or the ability to um, to manage with more precision what does that mean to the farmer and to the you know the uh, impacts of that agriculture might have on the environment I think that's a very good question uh, to be able to discern what are we doing different now compared to what we have done in the last 200 years so uh, a major shift in the way we're doing database agriculture is primarily that we're departing from average. Let me give you a flavor. Um, you know, our farmers are very good in producing food, no question about it. In many commodities, uh, we are among the very best in, on the planet. However, our major way of farming has always been treating the entire field as one management unit. Okay. Now, uh, it's so interesting, as you go around in the country and talk with farmers, they will tell you that they have observed variability in both space as well as in time in terms of productivity in their fields. But previously, we didn't have any mechanism to do anything about uh, that variability that we're talking about. So, to give you an example, um, a quarter section field, or 160 acres, is a very common field size in the state of Colorado. Okay. And in any given year, for irrigated corn, we could observe grain yield variability in that same 160 acre field, going from 30 bushels per acre to upwards of 300 bushels per acre. Now mathematically speaking, that's a thousand percent variability in space. And this variability happens in different parts of the field every year. So the question is, should we continue to be managing the entire field as one management unit? So if you look at the average of the field, Matt, it may be 225 bushels. But some parts of the field are producing 30 bushel, and some parts of the field are producing 300 bushel. And what this new way of doing agriculture has done 
the data-driven agriculture. It has allowed us to quantify where are those locations that are producing 30 bushels and where are those locations in the field that are producing 300 bushels. And it, let me ask a question about that. Just So if you have a low producing part of your field, how is that how would you manage that differently than the high producing part of the field? Would you add more or less fertilizer or water? A very interesting question because this exactly has been our journey. In my program, throughout my program, what I've done is when we have new projects, we, we immediately would create an advisory board where I have uh, farmers who are collaborating on the project. We have practitioners, service providers, people from other agencies such as USDA, ARS, and others, and industry working together, and we ask them this question. Okay, now that we know that there are different parts of the field are producing different levels, how would you like to see those parts of the field managed? And interestingly, I remember in the late 90s, farmers said, well, now that I know what are the low parts of my fields are, let's apply more nutrition in those parts of the field. Well, the trick is not necessarily just applying more. The trick is, what is causing the limitation to that part of the field? If it is the nutrients, yes, it'll make more sense. If it is the water, yes, it makes more sense. But not necessarily applying all at the same time. Right, okay. So, so uh, not only do you need to get good data, then you need to do some more work to figure out how to interpret that data and, and make recommendations. And I think that's where the challenge is. Uh, the graduate students who are earning training in my lab, uh, a lot of their time is spent on, one, quantifying spatial and temporal variability. Two, finding out the cost that's you know, related to that spatial and temporal variability. And then, collecting enough data of important parameters to develop what we call algorithms, so that we could translate the data we collect out in the field into a decision map. It's very easy to say, but very challenging to do because in agriculture, as you very well know, we're dealing with physics, chemistry, and biology, all the three together. Yeah, so if a farmer utilizes these precision ag technologies, I imagine they could get higher, higher yield, um, but I imagine also that they're more efficient, so they're they're only applying the the right amount of fertilizer at the right place, at the right time. Yeah, I, I think those are the five R's that you're alluding to. Precision agriculture, in a very simple way, could be defined as application of right input. And input could be genetics or seed, or fertilizer, water, money, labor, machinery, whatever that goes into the production system. So right input at the right time at the right place, in the right amount, and in the right manner. Those are the five R's of precision agriculture. Now, coming back to your question, could we enhance efficiency of inputs? Could we continue to increase yield? Could we be more profitable and do all of that in sustainable manner? Uh, and that's not easy. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that's what we're all aiming for, right? That's exactly what we're aiming for. So you can uh, present those as four goals of precision agriculture. Could we produce more with less? So we can produce more and more efficient. Could we make more money? And could we do all of that in a sustainable manner? Um, as I look back last 20 years, um, our work with precision nitrogen management 
and with precision water management has clearly shown over and again in on-farm trials that in many instances we can cut down our nitrogen applications by up to 46% without impairing grain yields. That's a lot, 46%, almost half. Yes, that's a very significant reduction. Now, that doesn't mean it happens every year and on every field. And so there's a range, you know. Uh, but we can, and in many cases I've seen, that we may be still be applying the same amount of input, but we're reallocating in different parts of the field where they really matter. Cutting back on the areas that are leaky or less productive, the chances of losses of those inputs are high, so we cut back, but then we reallocate some of those in the places where they really matter. Right. So we, we've talked about... Um, the importance of data. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kinds of data, where, where, where does this data come from? Uh, this is really interesting because we continue to learn more and more about agriculture. You know this very well, that, that final grain yield is a function of so many parameters, okay? And farmers typically have used their brain power to make those decisions by observations. But when we talk about digital agriculture and we deploy a computer, the only way we could um, utilize the power of the computing machine is to collect lots of data. And so, uh, you could imagine, uh, we do a lot of soil sampling, we do a lot of soil sensing where we are quantifying changes in soil texture, soil moisture, bulk density, in many cases infiltration and percolation rate, using sensors. Once the crop is planted, okay, then there's a whole horde of, of measurements that we need to do. Uh, plant population. What is the seeding rate? What is the planting geometry? What is row-to-row -row spacing? Or what is plant-to-plant -plant spacing? As it turns out, that all these parameters have a great influence on the final product. Then throughout the growing season, we uh, collect data on crop health. Okay. how the crop is doing related to the weather. And, and I say weather, and that's the, a, a very major conundrum because we still are not very good at collecting data. Well, maybe we're okay on collecting data related to weather, but not uh, totally not capable of projecting how the weather is going to behave inside the field more than a week Yeah, or maybe yeah. 10 days. That is a big challenge. So we, have, we get soil data. Yes. So some of that, some of that's from sensors. Yes, and um, and then you, you mentioned crop quality. So is that are those on on uh, sensors that are on the tractor, generally? So um, there are a whole suite of sensors, and and uh, compared to where things were five years back, yes, we have more sensors today. Um, but these are what I've said in my talks that these are first generation sensors. So you could have them handheld, you can tractor mount them, you can mount them on a drone and, and have flown on your field, but these are still sensors that are, that are providing an indirect measure of either crop or soil health. These are not diagnostic in nature. What do we mean by diagnostic? So you and I could go to a physician and they could draw uh, you know, a drop of blood and can quantitatively and diagnostically tell you what's your blood sugar level, right? We're not there yet when it comes to plant and soil health. But 
I'm very excited on the project that we're currently working on that's funded by uh, ARPA-E, which, which stands for Advanced Research Project Agency, Department of Energy. And this project entails to overcome the limit of sensing. Uh, what do I mean by overcoming the limit of sensing? Um, right now, it is very labor-intensive, cost-prohibitive, and time-consuming the way we quantify crop and soil health. And so our program, in collaboration with um, UC Berkeley and CU Boulder, are, are working to develop a totally new suite of sensors, and our focus is on, by the way, on moisture and nitrogen, okay. that, and they're very small, uh, they're inexpensive, they have no battery, and no they're... battery? Yeah, they, they have no battery. Where do they get their power from? So they're basically sleeping all the time, uh, wherever you place them, either on plant or soil. Our focus is on soil, but uh, place them on soil, all plant. I had and a dog like that once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the sensors are sleeping all the time. You actuate them with radio wave. I think the best analogy I can give you is when we go on expressway or E470. You have this sensor chip on your dashboard, right. and on 75 miles an hour, it picks up which vehicle, what speed you're moving, mm -hmm. and uh, you know how do we bill you. And so it's a similar analogy, but we're going one step further, and that we don't need to go back and collect these sensors. They totally degrade over time. They degrade. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, is that a good thing? I mean, you spend all this money on sensors <laughs> and then they, <laughs> they break down. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing. One of the feedback we had from our advisory group is that, look, you distribute these sensors in so many numbers out in the field, and we have to go back and then hunt them and take them down uh, if yeah, we get ready yes. for next year. Right, and dig them out of the soil, and that's impossible. That, yeah, it's close to impossible. Or, it's again, it's very labor-intensive. Right. So then the group felt, okay, if we make these sensors of material that would degrade over time, you know, after 200 days, they're totally worthless, and then they completely dissolve in soil, then we don't need to go and find them where these sensors are. We can just distribute them again next year. Yeah, it sounds like that feedback from the people who would actually use these sensors has been really critical to your thinking about these. You are exactly right. I'm an agronomist, or precision agronomist, if you may, and soil scientist by training. And so this is where agriculture now is dramatically turning into a transdisciplinary science where I cannot just do everything, well, we shouldn't, but uh, you know, that I cannot just work on one factor problem. I, can, I cannot just look at nitrogen. I have to have engineers on my team. I have to have data scientists, people who can harness that power of data and translate that into better decisions. Uh, I need to have people who understand remote sensing, who can fly drones, uh, who can actually break down the sensors and put them together. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's getting very multidisciplinary, if not quite transdisciplinary. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so cool. And I'm sitting here thinking, what was it like 20 years ago? When, you, when yeah. you were one of the pioneers in this field, and we didn't have, you know, the, a computer in our pocket, yeah. um, didn't have all these sensors. Yeah. How, did, how did Precision Ag start? It has been a very interesting journey, and, and like any innovation, it has got, gone through the gardener cycle, which is basically um, precision. I can do everything, everything, and it creates a hype and 
you know, but then when the reality meets, meets you know, the, or the technology meets the reality, then it goes on a slippery slope. And I think in early 2000, we were thinking the Precision Act will, will, will be gone. It will, it will not be around because it went through that cycle. But Precision Ag is still around. Uh, there's a lot more excitement today. Looking back in the history, I remember I prepared my first digital prescription map for nitrogen in 1995. Wow. And uh, the thing is, and I've been in soil fertility, so I was focused on the fertilizer fertilization. My team and I, uh, and I was, I was a you know graduate, a PhD student at that time, had to go out and take so many soil samples, <laughs> so many soil samples. This was in work I did in Virginia, and then bring all those uh, soil samples back, dry them, analyze them, and 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 then geocode those samples. Most of these things happen a lot rapidly today, um, and then create uh, fertility maps. Use that same old equation, you know, and the, 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 at that time, the logic was if you see less of something in the field, you apply more of that something at that spot. Right. We totally don't do that anymore. The location is important. Yeah. Because if you have a low spot in your field and it happens to be sugary sand, low water holding capacity, low cation exchange capacity, you don't want to put more in there because it's not going to stay there. It's just going to go away. And then use that logic to develop prescription map, and and the first prescription map we applied um, was with water, uh -huh. and we were so excited that the water was you know you can change the you can see the rate of change in the water as the tractor was going in the linear direction. It was very exciting. It must have been kind of kind of like you know the, the Apollo moon landing first time that. Uh, <laughs> water was precision applied yes That's cool yeah and uh and so so what was extremely labor intensive yes. and uh is now becoming more and more automated and, and we're starting to see that implemented out on the out on the field in the real world yes that's yes. really cool it has become very you know i shouldn't say very user-friendly uh it has become more user-friendly we could still make it easier but what happens is the more easier we make that means we have to hide the complexity behind the screen. Yeah, yeah. And that makes many farmers nervous. Right. That they want to know why we are making a decision or relying on, on a black box approach. And this is a sensitive topic because there are risks involved, risk involved in making decisions. Because if you don't apply the right input at the right time, at the right place, in the right uh, manner, it, it could hurt yield. So there are, you know, there are significant <laughs> risks involved. In yeah, that. yeah, yeah. What do you, What do you enjoy most about your work? Um, you know, empowering, uh, particularly farmers and farming community. Uh, when I talk with them, are what we are doing new, and they show interest instead of wow. Not you know, there was a time that they would you know I could wow them, and then they're came a time, you know, how, you know, they were asking, how could we do that? And fast forward, they want it now. So if there is an aspect that we are discovering in our lab, in our farm fields, doing, conducting experiments, they want to see that happen on their field. How do we make them more efficient, more productive, more profitable, and continue to do that in a sustainable manner, the four, four goals. Teaching excites me as well. Uh, I really enjoy teaching, and 
you know, extension is a kind of off-campus teaching, mm -hmm. but that, that's, that's also very exciting for me. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you grow up in agriculture and, and sciences? Um, sciences, yes. Uh, agriculture, well, if I look back, our last several generations have been in farming. Uh, there's no way and where, where was this? This was in India. Okay, so um, I grew up in India, uh, in the north uh, central part, and originally from the state of Punjab, which is considered just like the Midwest of U.S., mm. you know, the bread bowl of that country. And um, I was always fascinated by plants. Um, and interestingly, believe me or not, I was in fourth grade, and uh, that's when they start incorporating science into the curriculum. Uh, I'm sure they were doing it before that, but they you know, recognized that we're doing And they did a science fair. And I participated in science fair. And lo and behold, um, I, I stood first in whatever the science competition was. I was going to ask if you remember your project. I don't know what that project was, <laughs> but I remember, and i tell you why, you know, uh, what place I was that wasn't important, but the winners were taken to the local radio station and they said, hey, there's a science program for kids that we broadcast live every Sunday and if you can seek permission from your parents, we'll bus you there. And I did that. And, and it was so interesting, man, that um, I saw two other kids who were actually conducting the show and then there was a, another, uh, you know, adult who was supervising and uh, keep them on track and, you know, intervene as and when needed, a male and a female supervisor. And I asked them, just, just naively, I said, why are they conducting this program? And they turned back and looked at me and said, well, would you like to do this? And I said, <laughs> absolutely, I would like to do this. And lo and behold, I was on radio for 14 years. Really? I was kicked out for two, three years when my voice changed, <laughs> <laughs> and I had to re-audition, so I went through the audition, oh, and now I conducted the science program for many, many years, because this was fifth grade, and then I think in high school my voice changed, I was kicked out, and then when I came back, I kept on doing a youth science program live on, on, on radio. That's I, amazing. I, I really enjoyed it. And here you are back again, uh, the new format. <laughs> yes. So, um, so obviously that... You, you had that passion for science and science communication, and then uh, how did you end up? How did you end up here? What happened uh, after after high school? So, uh, at my interesting my high school uh, is also in ag sciences, uh, and there is an American institution um, where I was growing up, where uh, they had a very strong ag program. It's the first um, institution, which is now a university. Um, that started the agricultural science program by Dr. Sam Higginbottom. Okay. He was a missionary and uh, he, he got to India and he started this agricultural school. It's a Jesuit school. And, um, and I applied for it, I got selected, and um, I was, again, I'm tooting my own horn, I was best of, best in my class. And uh, my professor said, well, you should go for graduate school. And it so happens that majority of the faculty there were trained here uh, in the U.S. system in 1960s and, and prior to that through the USAID exchange program. And um, little did I know, the next thing I know, I'm, I'm here pursuing my graduate, graduate degree in Virginia, Virginia Tech. 
and um, I kept on liking one thing, you know, uh, leads to another. That's right. Um, so it has been a very uh, rewarding and interesting journey for me. Yeah, well, we're so glad that your your journey brought you here, and uh, that you continue to, to push the the, fi the field of uh, precision ag. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been great having you. Thanks so much for coming. Oh, pleasure's all mine, and uh, happy to reconnect if you need to. Sounds great. Thank you.